Hello, and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman, and my guest this week is the author of a book unlike just about any I've read. Mark Hamer is the man behind How to Catch a Mole, part memoir, part travel writing, part home gardening, part philosophical discussion. Mark spent years working as a mole catcher. He was born in the north of England and moved to Wales over 30 years ago. He was homeless in his teens, spent almost two years wandering, worked all kinds of jobs, until eventually he found his way into a garden. He is a fascinating guy, strikes me as a very zen guy, someone with an outlook on life I really enjoy. Here's his story. Well, Mark, you've lived a, a, quite a life in terms of experiences, whether that's a railway worker, a graphic designer, magazine editor, you know, you've taught creative writing in prison, you've been a gardener, a mole catcher. I, I'm wondering, of all these jobs, what's, what's a job that you haven't done before? One that you maybe dreamt of when you were a kid, but, but never actually <laughs> got to do? What did I dream of being when I was a kid? I had the usual dreams when I was a kid, being a helicopter pilot or something like that. Um, I've always been attracted to kind of solitary jobs, so things where I could be completely on my own, usually out of doors. Hmm. I, I, I haven't got any desire to do anything other than, than what I do, though, at the moment. And, and uh, I've often moved into jobs and gone off to do things that have had some kind of attraction for me. I mean, I worked on the railway for a long time. I worked in a signal box, and I, I was quite attracted to the idea of working in a signal box. So I got a job and went off and did that. So, I did, yeah, I just, I've, um, I've been quite vagrant most of my life, really. So I've kind of just looked at things that I thought I might enjoy doing and that I was capable of doing. <laughs> the solitary jobs, the, the, the connection yeah. to being outdoors, where, where do you think that comes from? I think that comes from my childhood, really. We moved around an awful lot when I was little, and um, I think we, we, were, we were quite poor, and I think when you move around a lot as a child, I remember very clearly I got to the stage where having made friends and then move on again, and then you make more friends in a new school, and then you move on again. I remember the stage coming where I thought, you know what, I'm not even going to bother trying to make any friends now because I know we'll be moving again in a month or two. And so it came out of that. I had to be independent, really. Um, it wasn't a happy childhood, so I, I, I was a solitary child. I, I had brothers, but I spent most of my time on my own. So it came out of that, really. I had to I had to kind of fend for myself and find a way of being in the world, which 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 just had me in it, really. And, so relationships were very kind of um, tenuous. Moving around was that was that work based for your folks that uh, that jobs would take you from one city to the next? Yeah, it was exactly that. Really, I mean, um, my mother was a cook, so she could find work pretty much anywhere. Really, and worked in factories and schools and things like that, bakers and that kind of thing. And my father just moved around from one job to another. Um, you know, he worked on the railway for quite a while when I was young. Um, and then he sort of tried to start various businesses and that kind of thing. We had a guest house at the seaside for a while, and um, then he got a pub in another town, and so he was constantly moving on, trying to find, trying to find the next big thing for him. Really, uh, your brothers, how how close yeah. in age would you have been with them? How close in age? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're about two and a half years apart. I have two brothers. I'm the eldest, um, so I have a. A, a younger brother and one younger than that, and each of us are about two and a half years apart. They don't live live here. My my younger brother lives in New Zealand. He went there, 
and my middle brother went to New Zealand and lived there for many years and has just returned and lives up in the north of England. So I see him every now and again, but we don't. We're very politically different, so we don't kind of get on too well with each other. <laughs> right. So, so nonetheless, uh, tended to keep to yourself uh, as, as a child and... Uh... And that suited you just fine. North North of England, though, that was that was mostly home, right? Manchester area, if you were to call one place home more than others in the in the early years. That's right. Manchester, Lancashire, Wigan, all around that kind of area in the northwest of England. All mill towns, basically, um, industrial towns, mill towns, steelworks, that kind of thing. What were those places like uh, in in your childhood years? What uh, what kind of feel did Lancashire or Manchester have? In oh, those they. Days? They were dark. When I was little, they were dark, smoky places. I mean, the, the fa- a lot of factories were still going in those days, and chimneys were, you know, the houses were all heated by coal, so there'd be black smoke coming out of all the chimneys in the winter. You know, it was dark. I mean, it's not dark anymore. I've been up recently, and they, obviously people don't burn coal anymore up there, so uh, all, the, all the buildings have been cleaned up. Uh, it was quite poor. I mean, we used to play out in the streets with the other kids um, and that kind of thing. We could, and um, but uh, yeah, it, they were they were dark times. It was cold as well. Um, you know, we had you know one coal fire would heat the whole house really, and uh, we'd all sit around it and get chill blades in the winter <laughs> trying to keep warm. <laughs> um, so it was it was a it was a dark place. It's it's much brighter now than it used to be up there. You were sixteen years old when you left home and walked for for quite a long time, almost two years. Uh, yeah. What? Uh, what? Like, where did you decide to go, and, and what prompted uh, your your period of of wandering? What was the direction then? Well, well, what happened was that my mother died when I was sixteen, and my father basically just threw me out of the house as being surplus to requirements. I was I was just a load on the uh, family finances, so he threw me out. I was an, an apprentice in the steelworks at that point. So for a while, I kind of sofa surfed and slept on people's couches and that kind of thing till I wore out my welcome. I didn't earn enough money to rent anywhere, um, so I was kind of homeless. There was nothing that I could do. I was I, I slept for a little while in in a, a, in a sunken boat, which was just out next door to the factory I worked in, and then in empty derelict houses, which there were a lot of around at that time up there. And then eventually, I just thought it's just I, I you know I. I had to give up my job because I, 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 well, no, I didn't have to. I chose to give up my job. I thought, if this is the way it's going to be, it's not working for me. I'm just going to do the thing that I want to do and just see what happens. And the thing that I decided to do was just walk. And I just I just got my few bits and pieces together, I, um, um, a rucksack and threw a few things in it, and I just started walking along the towpath. And... I just didn't turn back. I just kept on going. I kept on going for, for, as you say, nearly two years, about 18 months, really, considering that I kind of took the winters out and found somewhere to squat in the winters. But, you know, two years homeless, 18 months of, of walking, basically. Um, and I just walked along the towpaths. And when I saw something that looked like a nice and interesting place to walk to, you know, there might be a little stone bridge and I'd cross it and go into the fields and cross the fields and find a little spinny of trees to to sleep in for the night and then back. And it was just basically that. I avoided towns for the most part. Hmm. Um, occasionally I would wander into a, a village and things like that. I had a little bit of money in my pocket because I'd been working and I had money back from the tax office, and I had several weeks worth of holiday pay that they owed me. 
and and it's not an expensive business walking. Basically, you just need a lump of cheese and an apple, and it'll keep <laughs> you going all day. And that's that's how I lived really. Finding places to squat. I mean, that that itself sounds like a skill that has to be acquired. Uh, whether that's finding an empty house somewhere, like how, how does how do you go about that? Is that a word of mouth thing that you learn from others where to go, or is it simply kind of poking your head around places until you find somewhere that looks promising? Well, what I did in the in the winters when the cold weather started to come on, I realised that I couldn't sort of survive out living sleeping underneath the bush when the snow was falling or the ground was frosty. Not for any length of time, anyway. I've spent a few nights like that and slept out in the snow on many occasions, but I couldn't spend a winter, a whole winter like that. I realised. So what I would do is I would head into a town, and the first year I headed into Blackpool seaside town that I'd lived in once. And I I knew that, because this is the 1970s, so I knew that there were lots of hippies about. And basically, I went and found out where the hippies were and hung out with them and said, look, I haven't got anywhere to stay. Can I come and squat with you guys for a while? And that's what I did for the first winter. I found all the hippies and squatted with them. I found a job as well. I was working in a warehouse. So I was quite a welcome addition to the family, really, because I was bringing money in and buying food and things. Um, so that's what I did for the first winter. I squatted with the hippies, but they 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 got a little bit wary after a while, and there were lots of squabbling, and there was a lot lot of drugs around, and I wasn't interested in any of that stuff. Right, right, yeah. How do how do hippies or those hippies in particular make for roommates and flatmates? Um, okay, for a while because they were quite relaxed. They weren't they weren't kind of hardcore drug users, but there was a you know there's a lot of cannabis and things like that around, and you know and that's fine. But what happened is that people start to get a bit a bit argumentative because it's like who's where's my drugs gone and, okay, that, and yeah. that kind of thing so they were they were quite difficult to to live with after a while as i say i wasn't really interested in any of that stuff it wasn't a lifestyle that appealed to me oddly walking the towpaths appealed to me far more so as soon as i could get out of there that's what i did as soon as the weather started to turn sort of february-ish i was i was off again packed my bag and, and left again so uh, preferring to stick to the towpath and avoid towns as much as possible, is that, do you feel yeah. like, again, that's a function of, of, you know, kind of the solitary being, of, of being alone in nature, or, or what, what do you uh, attribute to that? Well, yes. I mean, initially, it did feel, when I first started doing it, it did feel very, very lonely, and there were times when it, when it was, I did feel very, you know, it was a solitary experience. But after a little while, you're walking along and you're just tramping along the paths and there's nobody there to talk to. And there's nothing left to think about. You know, I'm just walking. I've been doing it for like a year. And there's nothing left in my mind to think about. So you're just listening and feeling the breeze on your skin and hearing the birds and sleeping underneath a bush at night and hearing the little hedgehogs rustling around and, you know, coming across toads and lizards and crows sitting in the bushes and blackbirds singing me to sleep and then waking me up again in the morning and I kind of very quickly didn't feel lonely I felt I was just part of that whole thing I felt mm. like like I was just like another animal like a, a sheep in a field or a you know crow in a tree or so I felt just part of that whole thing which is uh, I wasn't expecting that to happen but I kind of lost lost a kind of identity of myself as being you know a young man living in the world and tried to make his way that all those feelings went away well that's a good point to bring up this quote of yours from the book you you write about this in your book how to catch a mole that 
on a long walk, you stop being who you thought you were. I mean, that seems to be yeah. what you're getting at there. What, what is that experience like of, of, of a dissolution of self almost? Well, it was, it's, it was quite a remarkable thing because, you know, as you can imagine, there I am. I'm just 16 years old. I'm walking along the towpath. I'm homeless. I've got a little bit of money in my pocket, so I know I'm going to be able to eat something. There's a water supply usually by the towpath from the old canal boat. So I'm feeling quite secure in terms of being able to eat and drink. Nowhere to sleep at night, but I'll find somewhere during the walk, and that's what I did. But what happened is that... The, all the kind of worries. First of all, I was worried, what's going to become of me? Am I going to live, live or die? And the point came where I could, you can only think those things so many times. So what's happened is I'm walking along and it's you know, the footsteps are like tread, 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 tread. That it could, I, I could be doing that for sort of five, six, seven, eight hours in a day. And there's just that rhythm. And what happens is that the kind of thoughts and the worries just stop, you know, stop going around and round. Initially, they just spin around and around the same old thing going round and round. And eventually, I think your mind or my mind just got bored of it and they just stopped. And I was just listening to the birds and the breeze and the canal or the river next to me or wherever I happened to be, the breeze and the grasses or the trees or, you know, that kind of thing. And I, you know, so it just kind of disappeared. And I didn't realise at the time that's what had happened. I didn't feel unusual. It's just what happened. Later on, when I came kind of back to the world, as I kind of, kind of think of it, I realised what an unusual experience that was, and I started, you know, reading and trying to figure out what had happened. And uh, but at the time, it just felt perfectly natural thing to happen. I just faded away and just became this pair of feet walking down the path, or this this head with the air flowing around it, this body with the breeze on its skin. You know, the sight, the idea of there being a me mm-hmm. feeling these things and a me. Excuse me, but a me with a, a a future or a past just kind of faded away. It was a very odd thing. That that sounds to me like a meditative thing, like a an extreme kind of experience yeah. of being in the present. You know, that's the sort of thing that people people seek out and, and try to achieve, uh, but rarely do. <laughs> it's uh, it's difficult to to remain in the present. It is very difficult. I I kind of got there by accident. Of course, later on, when you know, when I was much older, and I'd, I'd settled down and I started reading, um, and I, I I kind of found that out really, and sort of. And I I do even now. I I go and sit in meditation most mornings and just open the back doors and whatever the weather, and just sit on my cushion and and just let the breeze blow around me, um, and um, I I can lose myself quite easily like that these days. Um, but yeah, at the time I didn't realise that it would that it could be considered a remarkable thing. It mm. just felt perfectly natural. Um, yeah, people do, and people do kind of struggle to find that kind of sense of peace. Um, but I think we live in a world that that doesn't want you to find that peace. Really, mm. I think television doesn't want you to find that peace. The media doesn't want you to find peace. People who want to sell you cars and holidays don't want you, definitely don't want you to find that peace because <laughs> they're trying to sell it to you. Yes, yes. It seems completely at odds with uh, with capitalism, for sure. Uh, this this yeah. kind of need to drive, uh, drive to buy, buy, buy to, to fulfill. Absolutely. And you won't be happy until you have it. And then, of course, you have it. And then you realize it isn't satisfied you. And then they try to sell you the next thing or the mm-hmm. new and improved version. Your situation uh, of of being homeless for for close to two years, I think, is both yeah. one that 
the majority of people have not experienced, but also one that's probably more common than we might assume. I, I think homelessness, whether temporary or chronic, is something I mean, we don't easily talk about. So whether someone's yeah. experienced it, we may not always know. You've written in this book that the homeless of any species are often predated. Um, yeah. What's, what's the relationship like that you experience between, I mean, I think that's probably a function of avoiding towns too, is, is yeah. just not wanting to be around people. But what, what do people get wrong about uh, somebody who's homeless? What are all the judgments that people make and misconceptions that they have? Well, I, I didn't spend a lot of time in the towns, really. And when I did there, I, I kind of went there with a specific f- purpose to find somewhere to be, to find somewhere to sort of stay for a while. Um, but I know when I, when I first arrived, for instance, at Blackpool, I'm trying to figure out where all the hippies are. And I, go, I start off at the railway station and then, then and try to trace them from there. I know that there were, that there were, there were men who... Because tra- I'm a young man, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just over 16, approaching 17... And um, there were men there who would try, who who, who approached me and said, "Look, come back to my place. I'll look after you. I'll look after lots of young boys like you." So there's, you know, there there were people around, mm-hmm. and also walking along one night, there was a, a woman who pulled up in a car, right? And I'm I'm quite dishevelled at this stage. Um, she pulled up in a car and invited to me party to a party, and I thought, "What kind of party are you inviting somebody who looks like me to?" <laughs> so I quickly got out of those situations and and felt. You know, but the hairs stand up on the back of your neck, and you know it's not right. Um, right. So I kind of get out of those situations, situations pretty bad. But I mean, we've got lots of homeless people around here. You know, there, there was a guy living in a doorway in the village that I live in, and um, I chat to him when I go past every time. You know, we know each other's names and stuff. We'll have a chat. And last year he was. Um, sitting in his doorway, and I gave him a couple of quid out of my wallet. And uh, he said, I, th- I think I've got a chance of getting a flat. I said, oh, that's brilliant. And he said, yeah. He said, um, I've got to be there at four o'clock today to put a deposit down. So I thought, okay, here he comes now. He's, he's, after, he's after a few more quid out of me. Right. Mm. And so I, I got the story. And he said, yeah, I've got to give him £30 so that I've got the, my deposit. And I said, you know what, Scott, I'm going to give you 30 quid. And I gave him the 30 quid and he legged it. And I didn't see him again for over a year. So, you know, you take a chance on something like that. And I gave him that 30 quid. I didn't see him again. I saw him in the street the other day. And uh, he pretended not to know me. Mm. He did obviously know who I was. He pretended, and he, and he, was, he was looking good. And he, he'd, he'd found this place and that kind of thing. But he could quite easily have gone the other way. I'd give him cash out of my pocket to somebody in London. And they walk past. And the next day I'm walking past. And they're in the doorway shooting up heroin, you know. So that... You don't know. I think that whole thing about looking, supporting people who are homeless. I think once you've given somebody something, that's their choice what they're going to do mm. with it. You know, they, you know, whatever's going to make them survive another night or another few nights or whatever it is. I'm, I'm not going to judge people for doing that. But you know, they get treated dreadfully. Homeless people. We have. We've had last year. I think in my own, my own town. I think there were. The number of homeless people that died on the streets, froze to death, it's kind of reached double figures, I think, and it's not a large town. Mm. You know, we're looking at 11 or 12 people that just died in, in the streets last year. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's a hard thing. I think, I, I think I was lucky. I think I made a decision. I made a decision that I was just going to risk life and limb and go and do something rather than sit and wait. I wouldn't sit and wait. I just went. That, that's, that's a good point to uh, talk about just when did you 
how did you decide to, whether it was a decision born of, you know, desire or necessity to, to decide to come stop walking, uh, to settle in a place? Yeah, I think I, I was approaching my second winter. Um, and the winter was coming and I thought, you know, Mark, you just can't really do this anymore. You're going to, the winter's coming, you have to find somewhere to stay. And it started to feel like the same old routine. The walking was still, it had become wonderful, right? But as the season ends and the and the winter's coming on, I thought, and also I wasn't looking good. Oh, you know, I was starting to get worn out, basically. My teeth weren't looking good. I was falling to pieces, basically. Mm. My clothes were falling to pieces. My shoes had gone through and been binned, and I was on a, I was wearing trainers, and I thought, um, sneakers, and I thought, um, this just isn't sustainable for any length of time. So I thought, I need to, I need to stop doing this now and find something else to do. I need to find somewhere to live and get a job. The last winter, I'd found a job in a warehouse and earned some money, and I thought, and so I, I, I went into, um, into Manchester. That's right. I went into Manchester, and I knew that my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, lived in a little town just outside of Manchester. I knew what the town was called, but I didn't know where she lived in the town. But I reckon I, I had an image of, of her house and what her house looked out looked like. So I walked into this town and I found the town and I, I couldn't find the house. I, I spent like three or four days wandering around and then eventually I just turned a corner and there was a street that I recognised. And I recognised it because there were 1960s three-storey townhouses. They were very particular kind of architecture. And I actually live in an exactly similar house today. <laughs> and, and I think I fell in love with those houses because they were, they were my shelter. So I, I, I actually ended up buying one of my own. <laughs> um, so yes, and I walked, and I, I didn't know which house it was. So I just knocked on doors and then and she answered the door. And there we are. I went, she, I went in, uh, she ran me a hot bath. She made me some uh, egg and chips and I stayed there for a long time. What came next after that? I got a job on the railway within a couple of weeks. I went looking for work and I found a job on the railway working in a signal box. Mm -hmm. So I worked in a signal box in a little stock, a a shunting yard, we call it, where coal trucks, you know, uh, little coal trucks were being um, arranged and attached to locomotives to take around the country. Um, So I found a job there working in a signal box by the shunting yard. And then I actually worked in the shunting yard, and then became a, a train guard on the on the coal trains. A train a train guard. So you're you're responsible for potentially other people, well, kind of guarding the train and making sure people aren't train hopping. Is that the sense? No, no. It's a, it's a brake man. Oh, okay. Yeah, so be sitting at the back of the train because in, in those days they were all loose wagons. They didn't have brakes on them. The only brake was on the locomotive and on the van at the very end. Um, so I, I sat in the brake van and travelled around the country on, on my own again, about a quarter of a mile away from the nearest of the human being, which was the driver at the other end, um, and travel around the country. And it's my job when we went oh, 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 down steep hills and things like that to put the brake on at the back end of the train. And to know what how much weight there was on the train and that kind of thing and our, our uh, schedule where we were going and what we were going to do. I mean that sounds like it'd be up your alley in terms of wanting to uh, to be out traveling about and uh, and of kind of getting yeah. some time by yourself. How, how was that experience? It was it was lovely. <laughs> I quite <laughs> enjoyed it um, because the the 
I don't know if it's the same over there, but what happens here, or used to happen, the trains are very different now, but you used to have this wooden brake van at the back of the train that had a little coal-burning stove in it. There was no electricity in it, no light, anything like that. You had candles or oil lamps and a coal-burning stove, and, and all that kind of stuff is shipped at night. So what we do is you sort of jump in it. The train rarely goes over 30 miles an hour. They're quite slow trains. And you're just travelling through the night in this little wooded van with the coal fire blazing away. We get get it so hot sometimes. The stove was red hot sitting in the corner. And uh, off to one coal yard and the shunters would take the coal wagons off and, and empty them and put them back on the train. And then we drive off to the next place. So, it, it, again, a very solitary life, working night shift mostly. Mm. Um, so I'd be arriving um, as the sun was going down and I'd watch the dawn come up in the morning from the back of my... And also the lovely thing was I could actually step out the back of my brake van to a little platform at the back and sit outside as the train's whistling along. So <laughs> it was a beautiful life, but it was, it was, it was again, very, very lonely. Also because I was working night times, mm. um, I would sleep during the day and, and that became quite solitary as well. And uh, eventually I kind of had enough of that and, uh, and I went back to school and did... Uh, some basic education to get me to get me into uh, college to do art at college yes yeah the night shift is a very different experience than than the day shift i've done uh, a bit of that as well and, and and you're totally well it's just on a different schedule a different routine than everyone else so uh yeah so it can end up being quite a different uh life while you're doing it uh, that that experience of, of of being on a train yeah a very different one than than being a writer than being a gardener uh, when yeah. when did the the writing side like was, were you always a writer when did that come into the picture for you I, I, I was always I was always a writer I think the writing really started when when I was walking when I was homeless 16 and 17 and I would I would sort of sometimes make little stories up in my head or sometimes I would kind of just almost talk to myself not out loud but think oh look there's you know there's a blackbird there I wonder if it's the same blackbird that I saw so you kind of I was kind of started to work with words to to a certain extent and then in the break van at night it's it was perfect opportunity to sit and write all night long so I I read lots of books and I, I started to write I came from a home that had very few books in the house so it wasn't an educated house at all I'm the first member of my family ever to go to college um, but Working in working on the railway, I started to read an awful lot, and I read, and I still do. I read a massive amount, and um, I think if you read, you can't help but write. I felt it was like I'd been given a gift by these writers that I was reading their George Orwell mm. and D. H. Lawrence and things like that, and I kind of thought writing was a way of giving it back, really. Mm-hmm. So I started to write, and I've been a writer been writing ever since even while I was doing other things I always I always thought of my writing as a way to help me to understand the world I never thought about it as a product to try and sell or any even anything that anybody else might like it was always just a thing for me to help me kind of explore and understand and also perhaps just record some of the things that were happening or some of the things I'd seen but mostly they were kind of uh, almost little discussions that would help me to understand what it was that I was seeing. So I'd be working, I'd be riding a train, and I'd hear this, tank, you know, this little clanking noise every now and again. I'd try to figure out what it was, and and I'd write a little story about it, you know, about there being a flat tire on the train mm-hmm. and that, because trains do actually get flat tires, uh, so that kind of thing. <laughs> 
So uh, when you're on the train during this time and you're reading yeah. books, uh, is there any, I mean, you mentioned Orwell. Were there any yeah. particular books, if there's one that kind of stands out as being one that maybe influenced you or shaped you more than another uh, in that time? I, I, I remember, and I've just been thinking about this in the past, because I'm working on another book at the moment, I've been thinking about this, and I remember actually the very first book that I bought with my own money from my own wages, and that was George Orwell's Down and Out in London and Paris, or is it Paris and London? Mm. I can never remember. It was that, um, and I, I, I was quite a nervous person. I, I, I'd... Um, as I say, we didn't have many books in our house and I started to earn money and um, sitting in this brake van, I needed something to do with my time all night and I went into a bookshop in Manchester called Grassroots Bookshop. It was quite a radical bookshop. I'd never been in a bookshop in my life before. Mm -hmm. And I went in there and I was looking around and I saw the title, I saw George Orwell's titles first and it was Down and Out in London and Paris and I, having just been a Down and Out, I thought I would get it and have a look at it. And of course, then I just fell fell in love with it and, and got the road to Wigan Pier. Because oddly enough, having lived in Wigan as well, um, and all the others, keep the Aspidistra flight, all the George Orwell stuff. And I, I kind of read that. And then it being a radical bookshop, there were lots of um, political stuff there, Kropotkin and all, all kinds of things. But I think George Orwell was my, my very first love, really, because he's the one that introduced me to to reading sort of proper growing-up kind of books, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah, and to think uh, sometimes a title is all it takes. I mean, if, if, if you've never been into a bookstore before and you're suddenly presented with all these options, yeah. how does somebody choose? You've got you to find a way somehow. So uh, I didn't know how to choose. Yeah. I didn't know what... what I, 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 I kind of had the idea that I wanted to read things that were good, Right. But I didn't know what was good. Right, exactly. <laughs> you could tell often by covers. I think it well, that's you know that's a bit pulpy, or you know, you get something that's got a spaceship on the front or a half naked woman. You think, okay, perhaps I'm not going to pick that, but I'm going <laughs> to pick this one up with the tower block on. <laughs> you know, so uh, and that was the level of my understanding. Yeah. But of course, I've read and read and read since then, and sort of uh, continue to read an awful lot today. So at this point in time, you're at your grandmother's, your maternal grandmother's house. Yeah. And uh, you make the choice to go back into school. What does what does school look like then? Is that uh, like did you complete uh, high school, or were you were you going back to complete high school, or were you entering college? And, and what were you yeah. looking to do? I, I I left school when I was fifteen, um, so I didn't take any exams. Um, had no tests, no exams, no qualifications, nothing when I left school. And went straight to work in the steelworks. Um, but it was my, my dad said, "Look, you know, lad, we need the money coming in. You've got to go to work." Mm-hmm. So that's what happened. Um, going back in, it was a very different thing because then I'm 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 studying I'm studying basic school level things really. We used to call them O levels in those days. It was an ordinary level of education, so it's O levels in that day. And I went in to do that. Because I thought, and I've been reading a lot, I thought, I'm really interested. I got really excited about learning things, about reading. and So I went in there and I did an English qualification. I did psychology and sociology and uh, art on that course. And I got some qualification. I, got, I, I passed my basic, basic tests. And I'd been reading a lot. And I started to draw and paint while I was, while I was there. Mm-hmm and take photographs 
and I'd built up quite a, quite a little portfolio of stuff. And my English teacher, I fell, who I fell madly in love with, she was about 60-odd years old. Mm-hmm. And she was just a very, very enthusiastic teacher. She said, Mark, you've got to go off and carry on with your education. She, so I said, well, what should I do? And she said, what do you enjoy doing? I said, I like painting and drawing. She said, well, go do art then. And I, I put a little portfolio together and went to the art school. Mm-hmm. And I got in on the strength of my portfolio. Um, and I started in September and oh, actually I missed a step out there I started a course which is a diploma course where I learned where I studied psychology and more art that's right a diploma course at Manchester Polytechnic I'd forgotten all about that <laughs> it was a long long time ago now yeah. and I did that for a year and treated that as a foundation course anyway and then went off to do art and philosophy in uh, Manchester and then in Staffordshire yeah this uh this kind of foray into fine art from painting and uh yeah. and illustration and writing got you into working for a period of time anyway at a prison teaching creative writing that's right yeah how did that come about i saw an advert i was looking for work i just finished now let me let me get the times the timeline right here because a lot of it gets mixed up in my head sometimes I'd actually got kids by then, and my wife was working, and I needed to find, and I was staying at home looking after them. She was working in radio, mm-hmm. and we would go out together and do radio recordings. We bought some recording equipment and went out and do some did recordings of artists at exhibitions and things like that, and then she would try and sell them to the radio. Hence, why I have recording equipment still. <laughs> um, uh, and she would do that, and I would, and um, so I was at home looking after the kids, and she was working doing that kind of thing. And I thought I need to find some work now to earn me some money. And I found some part-time work as a teacher. I'd got my um, fine art degree, um, couldn't really find any work off the back of that, but I found some part-time work teaching art in the prison. So I went off to teach art in the prison, and then they asked me if I would teach. Um, English as well. I, I was like, well, I haven't got any qualifications or experience. And she was saying, you've got far more qualifications than any, any of the inmates you're going to teach. Mm. So perhaps you could give them a step. So that's what happened. I ended up teaching art and English. And eventually the English took over from the art um, because uh, there was another English teacher who left and I ended up doing all the English teaching at the prison. Um, but basically it was about teaching young men who who had had very little education, if any, <coughs> and tried to engage them in storytelling and um, as, as a way of getting them to, to understand their own world and a way to get them to understand how they got themselves into the position they were in and also to give them an idea of, of how life could be, could be different. You know, what other skills did they have? What could they do with them? So it's that kind of thing. What was the most uh, lasting memory from, from doing that? Well, I was, but the prisoners I worked with were young men who were there on remand. They hadn't been sentenced yet by the courts, but some of them would have been there up to a year waiting to be sentenced, uh, waiting for reports to come back and that kind of thing. And I remember and some of them were very, very violent and very aggressive young men. They were very afraid, basically, and they, and they acted, acted their fear out in, in quite aggressive ways towards the other prisoners and towards staff and things like that. But I remember one young man there, and um, 
he said, "Well, what's the point of all this?" But he, but he was—I could tell—he was interested. You know, it was—it was a question he wanted an answer to, rather than just an act of defiance. What's the point of all this? And I said, "Well, if you get some skills like this, you could actually—it could actually take you somewhere." And I actually told him a bit of my own story of being homeless, and then ended up teaching in the prison. So he said, "You're a teacher in the prison. You were homeless." And I said, "Yeah, I was. Yeah," and. The, the kind of recognition that it doesn't matter what your situation is or where you are, you can change and do something about it. Your, your, your options might be very limited, but at least there are options. And you, you know, once you've take, made one choice and exercised those options, other options become available to you. And so we kind of talked through that whole process. And um, from being this angry young bloke, he just really got his head down and started writing stories and, th- and because he didn't want to be there anymore. He wanted to try and choose a different kind of life because we discussed the fact that you could choose a different kind of life if you wanted to, but you had to make an effort to it. And he got to the point where he just decided to make an effort to do that. And I, I remember him now. He had these little round glasses and I remember him putting his glasses on and starting to look and give the appearance of being very studious. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? He's, he's found another way. I was really pleased and proud, you know, and happy that there's this, this kid who could have gone down to spend a long time in prison and decided he was going to find another way purely through a conversation that we had. So that's kind of stuck with me, really. I remember him sitting there writing his little stories and things. And it was a it was a, a very very good feeling for me to see that happen. I uh, want to backtrack just a moment here. So when you got this job, you'd already had kids and and met your wife. Yeah. Uh, is there a good story to how you and your wife met? We met at art school. We met at when I was in Man- studying in Manchester. She was studying in Manchester as well. She was studying the history of art in Manchester, and I was studying fine art, painting, and sculpture as a practical course. And uh, we met at a party, a student party. I'd just, I'd just graduated and she was in her second year. And um, we met at a party and we got together and we've been together ever since. And that's 32 years ago. Fantastic. Yeah. How does a, a, a railway worker, a creative writer, a, an artist, a magazine editor, how, does, how do you become a mole catcher? After all those things, <laughs> um, the necessity of, of earning a living. Really, <laughs> I did lots of things, and I I could never I could never settle to them. I'd worked in I'd done office jobs and things like that, and just couldn't settle to them. Um, and um, eventually, I thought I need to make a life change about all this, and and um, I started working as a gardener. I needed an income. The, you know, the other work wasn't doing well; it had dried up. Um, so I started working as a gardener and, and I thought it was something that I could do because I had sort of skills with colour. I'd been trained to use colour and I'd been trained to sort of think about form and how colour and form work together. Mm-hmm. And that, with a very strong desire to work outside and on my own, just eventually just crashed together and Kate said, why do you be a gardener? <laughs> so I did lots and lots and lots of study about gardening. I bought all the books. I did courses and things like that. And I became a gardener. I, I talked to other gardeners, and uh, and I started off mowing lawns and pruning roses, which is which is you know an easy enough thing to do, and built my skills up from there. Um, 
and that led into me having to catch the moles in the gardens. Yeah, yeah. You probably don't think initially when you're going to be a gardener that uh, that mole catching is going to be a part of it. I thought it was going to be an idyllic existence where I would go out <laughs> and mow the lawns in the sun with my shirt off and have a wonderful time. Um, it turned out to be very, very hard work indeed. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I became really fit. It was very hard work um, because the equipment was very heavy. I was working in very large gardens. I was lucky to get some customers with with immense gardens. And my last customer who I worked with, with just this one customer for quite a long time, had a garden that was that was seven acres of lawn. It was massive, and it had to have stripes on it. So I had to walk the seven acres behind the mower that made stripes. So. Um, so it wasn't idyllic at all. It was just damn hard work, especially in the hot weather. You, uh, as a gardener, you've, you've written in your book about a preference for using, you know, big hand scythes, right? As opposed to maybe uh, mechanical, you know, lawnmowers yeah. necessarily. What, what's behind that? Well, the, in, in this particular garden that I just mentioned, at the bottom of the garden, there was a, a wild flower meadow. It had been just a little bit of, of wilderness but we planted and seeded it with lots and lots of wildflower seeds. And learning how to manage a wildflower meadow, I realised you have to cut it down. I found out you had to cut it down twice a year, otherwise it turns back into grassland again. So the idea is you cut the grass down so that the wildflower seeds can germinate and have a bit of a head start above the grass because they grow faster than the grass does. Yeah. And cutting it down, because the land was... Um, it was, wasn't a nice flat lawn, it was kind of quite wild. There were only a couple of ways I could do it. A lawnmower wouldn't do it. It would have to be a power scythe or it'd have to be a tractor or something like that. And So those choices came up. And I could go out and buy a big piece of equipment like that or I could just go traditional and get a scythe. So I looked into that. I don't know where I came across the idea from, but the idea came. And I looked into it and there's a, a scything organisation in this country um, and they teach you to scythe, and they would sell you and scythe this, a scythe that's suited to your size. And I decided so did that, and I cut the meadow with a scythe. And I got quite good at that. I, I actually cut a lawn with a scythe at one point, which was, and it was as good as anything a lawnmower could do, apart from the fact it just leaves lots and lots of grass cuttings everywhere, which you can't mm. get up. So, um, so yeah, I, I scythe the meadow twice a year for, for quite a few years, and... Um, I fell, actually fell in love with that side. I've still got it. It's down in my hallway now. <laughs> <laughs> to mole catching again, what, what does one have to learn about moles to be a mole catcher? I think the most important thing about catching moles is that you have to learn to be very quiet. I've met quite a few mole catchers and they never you never go catching moles with another person. You always do it on your own because the moles can hear you coming from quite a long way away. And you have to be able to uh, convince the moles that you're no, no um, threat to them. <laughs> um, they hear you coming, and, and I've seen molehills being thrown up on the ground, and I'm sort of, oh, a good sort of 100 yards away. It's right at the end of my visibility, and you see the, throw, the soil being thrown up. And I take a step, and the mole stops throwing the soil up, and I stand and wait and it starts throwing the soil up again. I take another step, and it stops throwing the soil up. So it knows I'm there for a long, long distance away, quite a long distance away. So you have to learn to be very quiet, and that's if I'm st standing quietly. So it, what that means in practice 
is that when I put a trap in the ground to catch a mole, the mole knows that I put a trap in the ground and it knows where I put it. So what I have to do is I have to move around to the other side and put another trap in the ground and another trap in the ground and I have to do it very, very quickly. So the mole doesn't know, the air comes into the tunnel and the mole, know, the mole knows where I put the trap because the air has flooded into the tunnel. So I have to open the tunnel in several different places so the mole gets confused about where the air is coming in, basically. This is my system, by the way, and lots of other mole catches have different systems, but... Um, this is one that's quite seems quite common. Mm-hmm. So you open and you let the air flood into the tunnel in several different places, so the mole doesn't know where the trap is, where you broke it in. Because what it'll do, it'll just fill the tunnel up where it thinks the air is coming from. Um, so it thinks he's dealt with the problem, but really it hasn't dealt with the problem. There's two more traps circling it in other places. So it's about being quiet and being sensitive, really, being slow and delicate and sensitive. How did you come up with the the concept for this book, How to Catch a Mole? Where did where did that uh, where, you know where, were, where was the kernel of this uh, born from? It evolved really while I was walking around doing that. Job. I mean, as I say, I'd written for years and years and years, and I'd never really done anything with it, with the writing, and most of it it would just got thrown away anyway, and you know just got destroyed. I tend not to hang on to things for very long, um, so I. Was, I'd already been writing for quite a long time. While I'm walking around mowing the lawns and doing those, that, that kind of things, I'd started to write poems as I'm working. And I'd write them down in a little notebook or I'd write them on my phone and write the poems down. And I'm just, I'm just doing this because I'm enjoying doing it. And it's kind of adding to the richness of the experience for me just because I'm, I'm mowing the lawn or catching the moles and I'm writing about doing that particular job. And it kind, of, it kind of plugged me into the moment of doing those things. The mole book came about because I'm writing these things. And I thought, at one point, I'm going to have to pull these together. I just had the idea to pull them together and do something with it. So I thought, I'm going to write a little book about how you actually catch a mole. I'm just going to write what the steps are and the sequences and how you do it, you know, what tools you need. Very, very practical little book. So I I, I wrote that. And as I'm doing it, I'm adding in between some of these poems that I'm writing as well. And then some thoughts about what kind of day it is. And it gradually built up and built up. You know, mole catching is a thing here that's done in the winter very often. So it's so this about, I'm going into the, into the field to catch the moles. And there's a frosty day and the crows are singing. And I'm walking down this bit looking for, it, looking for where the tunnels are. And it just started to evolve and, and got bigger and bigger, really. And, and uh, it kind of grew <laughs> all on his own did you develop uh, an affinity for moles throughout the process of this book or had that, had that already been the case or how do you relate to uh, to the animals that you uh, you know spent uh, much of your career uh, or your late career trying to, uh, yeah. to catch I, I i like the moles they're very very intelligent little animals they're very they're very vicious and again solitary creatures and that working with creatures that are so solitary and being something of a solitary myself, I kind of um, have an affinity with them. Um, but, yeah, I like the moles. They're, they're very powerful creatures as well, beautiful, beautiful power, powerful creatures, solitary and very, very aggressive creatures as well, which I'm not at all aggressive. I'm, um, I'm, I'm the most peaceful guy you could ever meet, really. 
But yeah, I, I kind of, I, I kind of fell in love with the bells. But I do that all the time anyway. I've got a, a blackbird that sings out of my bed, outside my bedroom window at night when the, in this, when the season's right, and I fell in love with that as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a quote of yours that I, I really enjoy from the book. You mention this is a small life, and everything comes to nothing in the end. I yeah. like that. Uh, yeah. Can you talk about that? Speak to that. I think. I think one of the things, that, I think in our, in our lives, we have various different things going on, don't we? We have the everyday things that we do when we get up in the morning with our partners, if we're lucky to, enough to have a partner. We have the routines that we do, sort of showering or making something to eat, a coffee, cup of coffee or a cup of tea. And these things are the things that make up our days. We do them every day. And we have the other things, such as buying a house or getting a new job or a car or going on holiday, which you might do once or twice a year. And those big things are wonderful things, but they're not really what my life is made of. My life is made of the small things that happen every day, the waking up in the morning and chatting to my wife and making a cup of tea and bringing it to her in bed and then getting ready for work and all that kind of thing. Those are the things that my day, days are made of. And those things are very special because they won't last forever. You know, when my life comes to an end, they're the things that will stop. You know, the holidays and the car and all that kind of stuff, they're, they're not really relevant to the quality of a life, really. I think it was Annie Dillard who said, who's a wonderful, wonderful American writer, who said something about the thing, the ways that you spend your days and the way that you spend your life. And I, I really attach myself to that idea to the point where I think, OK, each day is my life. This morning when I wake up, I'm being bored again and I'm going to die again tonight and I have to make this day the best day, the best way that I can make it because this day is my life. And then the next day comes along and this day is my life. And then the next one comes along and this day is my life. So it's like each one is very, very important. The days that I'm in and that kind of living in the moment stuff that came from much earlier on in my life has kind of helped me to focus on that, that this day is the, is the only day. This day is the only day, and so it has to be made good. Mm-hmm. There's a beauty in that, in in putting a focus on each day like that. It's absolutely, it is absolutely beautiful because it means that I, 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 at this time of year, there's, there's, I, I kind of like to um, make my house look nice, and, and sort of I, I go out and I'll collect a bunch of flowers or something. I'll put it on the table or on the window ledge and things like that. And it's like five minutes of something that's very small and very tiny. But the pleasure that a thing like that brings is absolutely enormous. You know, so it's it's those tiny little things are very, very special. What has it been like uh this is this is maybe not quite such a tiny thing, but but having this book out and having it not just out uh in in one language, but in several yeah. languages now, in, in yeah. different countries, in <laughs> different corners of the world. Yeah, it's just been uh bought by South Korea. <laughs> which which is amazing. <laughs> so it's in um, 12 different languages now, or will be in 12 different languages. And that, I kind of, you know, I just, I think it's quite funny. I've got to be honest. I'm, I think I'm, I think I'm extremely lucky. Writing is such a difficult way to make a living, mm-hmm. such a horribly difficult way to make a living. Uh, so I think I'm extremely lucky. I'm a very, very lucky man to be able to sort of, to write this stuff and, and people enjoy it, and I get letters and emails all the time and from people who've who've enjoyed what I've done. 
And uh, I feel very privileged to do that. And the fact that it's coming out in South Korea and it's coming out in Poland and Hungary and places like that, which I've never been to and probably never will go to, hmm. um, is like, oh, wow, okay, it's coming out in South Korea. <laughs> you know, <laughs> So it's exciting and fun. But it's it's... It's not my daily life, you know. When mm-hmm. I when I get a bit of news like that, it's just it, it is funny. I think it is. It's just fun, you know. Yeah. I'm earn, I'm earning a living, and that's all I really want to do. I want to earn a living and live my life the best way I can, and make each day as as beautiful as I can make it. Really, you make a case for things that are unfinished. You know the, yeah. that you like things that way, unfinished. Uh, yeah. How come? Well, I, th- I, th- I think we have to accept that things are unfinished, really. I think I've learned to accept them. And then I've found a kind of, in accepting it, I've found a kind of, kind of beauty and poetry in it, really. You know, you think about your life's work. You know, one day I'm going to drop dead. And I'm, but I'm not going to drop dead because everything I ever wanted to do has been achieved. You know, there'll be things that I haven't achieved. You know, there are things that as you grow older, you let go thinking, well, that's never going to happen. I'm not going to, that's never going to happen for me. So unfinished business, there's always unfinished business. And I kind of, I like the poetry and that. I like to read kind of Japanese stuff and Japanese short stories. Traditionally, they'll end in a very odd place, which is not what we would consider an end. We like stories in the West that start at one one point, go to a certain point, and then all get wrapped up nice and neatly. But real life doesn't do that. Right. You know? And I I kind of really like the fact that it doesn't do that. And that kind of sense of... It it gives me a sense of impermanence and, and the ability to attach myself to what's happening at the moment, really, rather than... If you think something's going to end, you're focused on the end. You know, mm-hmm. so I kind of forget the end to anything really. I'm just, you know, if I'm writing a story, <laughs> I like the story to be a story that I can enjoy and that other people might enjoy. But it doesn't really matter to me that everything is wrapped up nicely at the end. I mean, Moly, <laughs> I think Moly is wrapped up nicely in the end. But uh, mm-hmm. but I kind of like the idea that um, you know, life just stops, you mm-hmm. know, and everything else carries on. It's not finished. It's not over. It's not complete. It just stops and everything else carries on. Oh, well, Mark, I, I think I could ask a great many more questions, but perhaps we'll leave this uh, finished or unfinished uh, here. Thank, thank you so much for <laughs> okay. making the time. Thank you very much, Martin. Thank you. It's been lovely to speak to you. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you want to find Mark's book, it's out in all kinds of corners of the world right now. If you're in Canada or the States, it's out through Greystone Books. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor. Hit subscribe, leave a rating, and a review. Best of all, tell someone else you think might like it. And if you love the show, if you want to support in some way, head to the shop section. There's merch available there. It helps the show continue to run. Theme music for Story Untold is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Artwork is adapted from Akosh Nema. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was a Story Untold. See you next time. Mm-hmm.